Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on this show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. We are fresh off the grass of Wimbledon, and what a fortnight it was. Serena Williams seemed like she was back in full effect, but Simona Holla found her footing on a new surface and pulled off an epic win. 15-year-old Coco Gauff showed the grit and determination of a future champion. And on the men's side, all the new hopefuls dropped like flies, leaving us with Novak and Roger fighting it out in one of the greatest Grand Slam finals ever played. There's so much to talk about, and we wanted to get into it with one of the most insightful broadcasters on TV, the guy who was off the air for the tournament, but right in the heart of SW19, courtside for the entire fortnight. As a teenager, he was a powerhouse, winning prize money at 12 and turning pro at 16. He was the first pupil of Nick Terry to crack the top 10. His carbonated forehand enabled him to post wins over Boris Becker, Jose Luis Clerk, Yannick Noah, and Yvonne Lendl, to name a few. And now his career has come full circle, returning to what was once the Boletari Academy as the Capo de Tutti Capo of tennis at the IMG Academy. Buffalo, New York's finest, former world number five, Jimmy Arias is going to break down what he saw during the tournament, including a technical analysis of the epic final between Roger and Novak. He's going to offer his thoughts on teenagers playing pro tennis and reveal the origin of his signature for him. We met up with Jimmy via Skype an hour after the men's final as he was waiting to board a flight. First of all, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. You know, I have to tell you, I think the last time I interacted with you, you were playing a senior event. I think it was in Naples, Florida. You, I think you might have been playing Pern for us, and you hit a tweener lob for a winner. Yes, I do remember that point. I made a pretty good get just to get there, much less hit the lob. I remember that shot. I recall hearing you on the broadcast, because I was in the truck, I think, and you said that Mike and Bob Bryan said that if you go tweener, try to go high because the person who hit that shot will close too aggressively, and you can catch it that way. Yeah, everybody always closes. Yep, exactly right. I forgot that the Bryans were the ones who told me that, but, you know, you got a better memory than I do, but it definitely worked. Okay, man, we do a five-set format. Usually we cover what's been happening on the court in the second set, but Roger and Novak just finished this unbelievable match, and I cannot wait that long. You are one of the most insightful people in the sport, so we're going to switch this up. This is our first set. We call it the On the Court Report. I think since it's just fresh in our head, let's just start with this men's final. Um, Jimmy, just your impressions. I don't even know. I, I really don't know where to start. Yeah, it's my impressions are a few things. One, I can't believe how much better the big three it was once the big four, but Murray, as we know, has been injured. That the big three are compared to the rest of the field. I mean, it's they're lapping the field um, even at advanced age. I don't know how in the world a thirty-seven-year-old like Roger Federer can play to twelve all in the fifth. Um, and especially with some of the rallies, the other thing that enters my mind is grass courts have gotten incredibly slow. I mean, they're having 
drawn, long, drawn-out rallies where the ball sometimes, most of the misses were because the players got a little anxious and were out in front. The ball was bouncing up too slowly um, or much slower than they expected. So um, all those factors, plus the fact that it went, it was a historical 12-all tie break, first time we've ever had that happen. Um, obviously, it was the first year they were using that format at Wimbledon. It happens in the final. Um, it was a huge disappointment if you're a Roger fan, just from the standpoint of he had a couple of match points. And on one of them, he had a short forehand, which he came to net on, but he hesitated just a little bit before going to the forehand. It's something he normally doesn't do. He takes the ball so early that he left that cross court angle open because of he was just a step or two further back. As soon as he hit it, I said, oh, no, he's not touching this next volley. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, he needed to absolutely laser beam that forehand, didn't he? He just needed to take it earlier. He didn't hit it unaggressively. He just, he took it from a little bit too far back and he was running around. It's a dangerous shot. When you run around your backhand to hit a forehand inside in and come to net, one of the easiest shots is for it on the run cross court path. Um, so you got to make sure you've got that angle cut off and he wasn't close enough. Yeah. Earlier in the match at the third set breaker, I said that I thought that Roger may be fatigued. You and I talked for a second and I said, I thought maybe he was fatigued. He said, no, 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 no. That's tightness. When a player generally speaking is striking the ball too early, swinging too early, that's often nerves. It is. And it's definitely nerves. That was how I showed nerves was striking it too early. And that's how Roger also shows nerves. And if you remember, and that's the third set tie break, he missed his backhand, by the way, has gotten so much better. It's a joke how big he hits his backhand now. Um, but on a couple of points in that tie break, he was a little anxious. He was a little out in front and shanked the backhands. And he also missed a few forehands that he probably shouldn't have missed throughout the match. I mean, I actually thought he, had the weapons in the game and the style to win that match. His short little slice cross court causes Novak some issues because he's sort of a no man's land. He doesn't want to come in. So he, he needed to keep using that, take the next ball early, rip it in the corner. I mean, you still got to hit 12 great shots to win a point against Novak. That's, that's the part that makes it tough, especially when the nerves set in. So Roger actually kind of crushed him in the two sets that he won. And he lost three tie breaks. So when it got close and Novak goes into that, I am not going to miss mode, which is what he does. You can almost see it on his face. I'm going to run down. You're going to have to hit 12 great shots to win a point against me. The other thing that I was going to say was I thought that Novak handled that wicked slice very well. Oh, he does. He, he, he does handle it well, but he sort of does the same thing every time. He just, not every time. 90% of the time, he just flips a two-handed backhand cross-court. He rolls and it back. Some, yes, he just rolls it back cross-court. And I think Roger should have been taking more backhands down the line. He now has that shot. Take it early and make him run from sort of no man's land back to the forehand. And then, you know, that was sort of a pattern that would work because then Novak would hit a forehand on the run cross-court and Roger could take it early on the forehand, come in and create some pressure. The one thing about Novak's He's got great passing shots, don't get me wrong, but I don't think they're that hard to volley because they don't have as much movement as a lot of players. doesn't get up and down so fast. 
um, he hits it hard enough and he hits it accurately enough that he still passes you. But if you get your racket on it, you should make the volley. And Roger was able to do that throughout a lot of the match. Any last thoughts about this match? Um, unfortunately, I had to drive to the airport and I left at nine all. So I didn't actually see the end of the match. So that, that's always going to be something that bugs me because that was an epic. But I'm sure I'll see it in replay. For sure. Um, we'll stay on the men for a second. Fed Rafa, semifinal. Well, before the tournament started, before I saw the draw, I actually thought Rafa was going to win Wimbledon this year because of the way he played at the French, where he was Rafa, and I know he's won the French a gazillion times, and it's no big deal, but the way he won it, he was serving bigger, he was taking the ball a little earlier, he was flattening out the forehand sometimes, he was crushing the ball. And I thought, you know, that works pretty well in grass as well. But once I saw his draw... And I saw Kyrgios in the second round because I had to pick who I thought would win the tournament for Tennis Channel the, the day before Wimbledon, but I'd already seen the draw. So I chickened out on picking Nadal because of Kyrgios. I didn't think he would lose to Federer in the semis, um, but I underestimated really how, how much better Roger's backhand has gotten. That easy little flip cross-court forehand with plenty of spin that Roger was befuddled by for all those years. He no longer has any trouble. He just takes it a little earlier and sort of makes Rafa feel uncomfortable. I mean, Rafa literally served 85% of the time to Roger's backhand. And that's not working anymore like it used to. So, But, you know, the one thing that was unbelievable was just how well at about the back end of the first set Roger started hitting backhand return slap. I, I mean, defy explanation. Uh, I don't well, know if, if you've ever seen him practice, he can he does rip it sometimes and warm up and warm up before a match. He doesn't look like he's trying or that he cares when he's warming up. Yeah, complete antithesis of Nadal, who is in a frothy craze when he's warming up and practicing. <laughs> and Federer looks like he's you know going and grabbing a tee and he might hit a few shots in between. Um, but when he does hit returns in practice, he doesn't rip the backhand and it's impressive to watch. And he was obviously pulled it out against Rafa, he pulled that shot out and you know, Rafa's going to have to figure out something new. Jimmy, what sticks out in your mind on the men's side that you think is notable? Well, first of all, I also had to pick for tennis channel, the dark horse which was a player outside the top 20 that I thought would make the second week. And I picked Sam Query. I think he should be a perennial top 20 player with his attributes. Huge serve, huge forehand, very good backhand, moves great for 6'6". Six, six. Um, no reason for him not to have better results. So it was nice to see him sort of reemerge um, because he's been having a bit of a tough time for you know a couple of years now, it seems. So that was nice. Um, and again, the other thing that sort of comes to my mind is just the sort of the pretenders, the sissy posses, the Zverevs, the youngsters that are supposed to take over. They're still miles behind. Feels as though they're even falling further behind in some crazy way. Now, are you? Our show is a bit of an insider show, so I, you know, I like to at the very least ask. Um, do you have any interesting? knowledge or information about this Zverev Patricio Ape situation um 
he spoke to it after he lost and I don't know. I should ask Lendl next time. I'll, uh, I'll talk to Lendl and see what he says. Yeah. Um, what is your opinion of the lack of results from, I mean, let's just start. We could go Borna Chorich, Stefano Sissipas, uh, Zverev. Wow. Do they have, do they not have the gumption? Are they on their phones? Like, what is, what's the problem with these? What's the problem? <laughs> well, Borna Chorich probably doesn't quite have the weapons. So let's take him out of the mix. Zverev does, as we've seen. When he's at his best, he can sort of beat anybody. He wins Masters 1000s. It's just when he gets tight, his second serve and his forehand break down. And he's apt to get tight when, when, it's, when it's big moments and big tournaments. So you're not going to win majors if you get tight and those things show up. And that's what seems to happen to him over and over again. And it's not just against the top players. It happens in early rounds for him, obviously, in the majors. He's got to figure out a way mentally past that. And he's actually on a difficult path right now because he's he's barely above 500 for the year. Um, once you start losing that consistently, it's, it can, I'm speaking from experience now, it can, it can start to build on you and sort of, you lose that confidence, you lose that edge, which is what you need to win at this level. Sasha Zverev gets the yips. Sasha Zverev gets the yips, man, on his serve. He does. And his forehand, actually. His (laughs) forehand also tightens up. So it's two shots that, uh, that are pretty important in the game, especially these days. Serve forehand is the is the recipe for a lot of players. And is there a place for these sort of celebrity coaches? You know, the the, the celebrity coach gets a lot of um, adulation. It gets well, it gets a lot of it, it like gets a lot of attention, man. And it seems to me like the ones that are doing the work day in and day out, and not just showing up are the ones that are I agree with getting you, the wins, the man. Yes, I agree with you 100%. I mean, a perfect example is Djokovic and Marion Vida. When Vida is in his camp and there, whether there's a celebrity pro or not, Novak usually does well. When Vida's gone or when he was gone, that's when Djokovic was falling apart. So I agree with you. It's, the, uh, it's, a, it's, it's nice to have the celebrity coach. It helps uh, uh, announcers have something to talk about during the match. That's what I think <laughs> but, too. It seems ridiculous. Yeah, but I don't think it's that. You know, it, it, it's it, it can be useful because one of the things that those top players, those celebrity coaches, have is they know what it feels like to play in the final of a major, and they can pull from that experience. And to that point, you know, Lendl was with Zverev at the ATP Finals, and you know, we talked about our last show with Brad. You looked at Zverev in that tournament. You thought he was never going to lose a match ever again the way he played. Yeah, no, no, no. When he's right, he's unbelievable. And Sissipas sort of, I don't want to put him in that same position as Zverev. I think Sissipas mentally is a giant right now. I actually think he's got a little bit of a weakness in his game. If you hit the ball up heavy and high to his backhand, to his one-hander, he's got to give up a lot of ground and you know, he has some issues with that shot and players aren't using it enough. I'd be serving and balling, not me, because I can't serve and balling, but <laughs> um, I would get my pupil when playing against him to serve and volley, kick her to the back and at least once or twice a game just to just to let him know I know he can't hit that high backhand very well. Um, 
but he wins matches that are tight. I mean, it doesn't matter who he's playing. He's, he's done a great job of winning close matches. I mean, his, uh, his run in Canada last year where he was down and out in almost every match and kept finding ways to win was amazing from a mental standpoint. Um, does anything else stick out in your mind? Hercots or I think Hercots is a very good player. He's somebody that, that you're going to be looking for in the future. I think he's got all the tools for top 20 as well. Um, the other, I just got a, you know, a little doing myself a commercial for IMG Academy because the winner of the boys juniors was a 16 year old named Shintaro Mochizuki, who literally three or four months ago was not even close to this level. I've never seen a kid improve more in a shorter period of time than he has. And he saved match point in the first round of the tournament and ended up winning it. He saved match point in the first round and won the tournament. Uh, just say his last name again for us. Mochizuki. Mochizuki. And he does the whole sleepover. He goes to school at the academy, the whole thing. Is that right? He does. He's part of what is the known as the Marita Fund, which is what Kane Ishikori came from. Mr. Marita, who's CEO of Sony or was, um, backs Japanese tennis players to come to IMG. And from that program has come Nishioka, Nishikori, and now you're going to see this kid, Mochizuki, I hope. He does have some weaknesses to his game, but he's the most fun player to watch. I've never had so much fun sort of seeing a kid develop because of the way he wins points. He sees the ball. It's a little John McEnroe-ish in a way, in that he's playing players that hit twice as hard as him. But he just comes forward and redirects their power against them. And... It's incredible to watch. Yeah, I'm going to go look on the ESPN app because ESPN app has all the junior uh, matches. And actually, your buddy, Brad Gilbert, we have another kid. The kid that um, Shintaro beat in the semis uh, is Martin Dam. His father played on the tour. It was mostly doubles. And he's only 15, and he's 6'6". And Gilbert is a big believer in size and power, and he moves well for 6'6". So. Gilbert's much higher on him than he is on Mochizuki, even though Mochizuki beat damn 10-8 in the third in the semis. Wow. Uh, IMG Academy, by the way, always turning out high-level talent. Um, let's just go to the women. First of all, what can you say about the carnage that, <laughs> that happened out there um, the first week and a half? Um, what I can say is it seems to be what always has been happening on the women's side now for a while, ever since Serena is no longer completely dominant. It's not, you're never sure who's going to emerge from week to week. And, and that's exactly what happened again. It's impossible to make picks on who's going to win the women's. It's, it's kind of an interesting conundrum for me. What's better having the same people every time, which is what's happening in the men's, but they become stars. So people want to see stars or, do you have a new face, a new person, and that should you know breed interest from time to time as well? So I'm not sure which is better for the game. It's probably better to have the stars, and right now the women sort of don't. Well, I got to tell you, I thought that Azarenka, with coming into the tournament, was doing the work. Um, she was at IMG Academy in December, getting ready for this year, and she was definitely putting in the work. Yeah. And, um, and I thought she was playing an incredible level and I'm actually shocked she hasn't done better. 
Yeah, I mean, but you know, she was she was it was all it was all square three all against Holop. Um and she just missed, you know, like it felt to me like she missed twenty five sitters and lost the match uh either three and one or three and three in love or it was just tragic. Uh and Holop wasn't playing the way that she played against Serena, that's for certain, man. She was I mean, you know, Serena about the finals of the women's just my quick impression is that yes, Halep played amazing, but what Halep did amazingly was defend. Um, she put a whole bunch of balls back that you wouldn't expect her to get back, but Serena was not moving and getting in position for balls that she should have been taken care of that she normally would. She was making so many errors and just not moving. And so, yes, it was an amazing performance by Halep and the, how calmly she served it out was awesome to see. Halep, um, Jimmy, don't you think Halep played big tennis? Um, she saved her best tennis for last, and it seemed like Serena... She, she played as big as she could play, but it's still nowhere near what Serena can bring. Or Pliskova or Kvitova or you know any of those sort of top players. Those are the ones that, to me... If they play well, you can't beat them. Halep can play her best, and you can still win because you're. She's not going to be roasting winners. She's going to put together good shots and, you know, build the point and eventually finish you off. I mean, incredible effort from her to to win seven matches on grass. I'm. I'm she definitely to wasn't in my top five that I was going to be thinking about that could win Wimbledon. To be honest, so you know, my hats off to her. Congratulations. Um, looking into the hard courts now, um, is there any one that we should think about a little bit more? I mean, Ash Barty tapping out was, um, surprising. That's for certain. That was actually, she's an amazing player. I love, she's sort of my favorite player to watch now because such variety and she volleys. I always say when I'm commentating a match of hers that she's got the best volleys in the world, man, or email i don't know if that's right but i've never seen her miss the ball when she gets her racket on it it's amazing um so i love i love watching her play i mean obviously there's just a whole host of these you know coco golf how can you not talk about coco golf um and even she qualified first of all which without dropping a set that in and of itself speaks volumes to her level you know, I thought that that second round match where she came off the mat, um, you know, her opponent, she got extremely tight. Um, yeah. But what made her special in that match was it's a similar thing that what Djokovic does to you in that it takes four or five great shots to finish her off because she moves so well. And, and when you get nervous, it's hard to string together that many good shots in a row. And that's exactly what happened in that match you're talking about. And what's the deal? She's a, a more Toglu Academy player? I have no idea. I, I don't know about that. I just, he seems to be able to get in the box of whoever the hottest, you know, Sissy Poss when he started winning in Australia, all of a sudden more Toglu was there. And, and now with Toko Goff, he's there. He's, he's, he's remarkable at what he does. <laughs> You think that he's sort of is is that the Bolateri playbook where you basically? I, I believe so. I believe in the, so. the Bolateri playbook, that where you say, "Listen, 
Come to the academy. Bring your family. I'll take care of you. Exactly. Eat all the food you want, but if you make the semis, if you're on center court Wimbledon, I'm in your box. Exactly. I don't know that for a fact, but that's my thoughts. This is our second set. We call it the Off the Court Report. Now, do I have it right that you're the head of the elite player program at the IMG Academy? No, actually, so I've got two jobs, only one now, but my original job was director of player development. And then a couple of months later, they got rid of the director of tennis and put me in that spot. So I'm in charge of the entire IMG Tennis. For those of you who don't know, IMG Tennis is the premier tennis academy in the country in Bradenton, Florida. They're also a full sports camp as well. Their elite facilities and their tennis training is something special. Um, a huge amount of pros show up to use their facilities and pass on knowledge to the next generation. Um, so as head of tennis, what do you do there? I'm in charge of trying to get the numbers, and I'm also in charge of the good players. It's sort of a funny dichotomy that they have there at the academy because you need to make the numbers and then if you do make enough paying customers, you're able to use some scholarships and try to bring in some of the more talented players around and then try to develop them. So sort of a two-pronged system in a way. And the story with that is that you've kind of, in a sense, come home, right? I mean, you were one of the first bulletary. It's so different than when I was there that, yes, it's coming home. I've lived in this area. I've lived in Sarasota, which is about 20 minutes away from IMG Academy for you know, the last 25 years. And it's coming home from that standpoint, but it's so different than it was when I was a kid Yeah, that I can't even tell you. It's just such a bigger enterprise now than it ever was. So it's sort of an interesting um, time in my life because I'm doing things that I've never done before, like work every day. Um, <laughs> what's, a, what's an example of some of your more high level obligations? Than, than well, that? I have to, yeah, I have to have certain retention numbers. So people that can come back, I have to reach a certain number and the number is pretty high. And so anybody that's waffling as far as coming back for whatever reason, I try to have a meeting, talk to them, talk to the parents, that kind of thing. And there's many meetings going on from the higher up, higher up than me in the company. So I have to go have meetings with them, which I'm not accustomed to meetings either. It seems to me like meetings are a chance for everyone to sit around and talk, but you never get down to business for half an hour or so. And that drives me crazy because I'd like to be on the court. That's what I really prefer doing. I prefer being on the court. I enjoy helping kids, whether you're a great player or a player that's virtually a beginner. Either way, if you're into it and you want to get better and I've helped you, that makes me feel great. So it's really for selfish reasons in a way that I love it. And now are you, are, are you on the court? Are, do, do you actually get on the court? Yes. You do? I'm on the court every day. I go to the court every day, not playing. I don't ever get to hit anymore, which really bugs me because, you know, the exercise, I'm standing a lot and talking, but... I used to play about two or three days a week with good juniors, with kids that are ranked about 50 in the world ITF, and still able to compete a little bit for a set, for one set. Well, I was going to say, um, you, 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 I mean, we see you on TV 
uh, on Tennis Channel. We'll get to that. But you look like you stay in pretty good shape, man. You look, you look, uh, younger, you look younger than yeah. you are, and you look like you uh-huh. uh, can still rip the ball, man. Well, I mean, I definitely tried to stay in shape. That's the one part that's becoming difficult for me is that I don't seem to have the time to go hit. And if I do, it's for two minutes um, with some kid that needs a little bit of work. So that part I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out, but uh, the rest of it's been pretty good. I do have, by the way, at, at IMG, I've got to say, I've got to, um, when they offered me the job, I was hesitant for a number of reasons. One, I like the guy that was being let go. Um, and then the second part was I knew that I wasn't going to be there every day because they do want me to do tennis channel when I have the opportunity. So, um, so I needed somebody to help and I got Pat Harrison, Ryan Harrison's and Christian Harrison's father, and he's director of operations. So he's there every day working hard, making sure everything's running smoothly. That's cool, man. I mean, and listen, you know, um, for those of us that watch uh, a significant amount of tennis, uh, you know, you bring definitely a high level of uh, breakdown and analysis that you only get when you are on the court looking at a lot of tennis. Um, Whereas I think that some of the other broadcasters – they just kind of show up and and uh, not necessarily are totally on top of it. I think that you do something a little bit different. Yeah, part of my thing is I, I enjoy teaching. My dad was an electrical engineer, but he also taught mathematics in college. And so I think it's in my blood a little bit to want to teach. And when I'm commentating, I feel as though rather than just telling you what you just saw, I should try to get behind why that happened and what you can learn from what just happened. So sort of my philosophy and commentating, I don't like, and occasionally I fall into it. It's easy to do if you lose concentration or whatever. There's sometimes there's nothing that's that exciting that's happened, but where you just say, well, great drop shot when the guy hits a drop shot winner, but I don't like doing that. I want to tell you how that got set up. Yeah, and you know what? Um, for our listeners, I like to think that we have a lot of connoisseurs and, and a lot of people that really pay attention to a lot of the sport. And uh, for those of you who don't, man, don't sleep on Jimmy Arias. He's one of the best uh, analysis there is. I'd like to see on some of the bigger high-ticket matches, to be honest. Um, yeah, well, thank you. So would I. <laughs> Let's move into our third set. This is where we talk about your career. You came up at Boletari's, right? I mean, you were one of the first Boletari breakout stars. I was the first, yeah. I actually was the first, um, and I actually helped him get it started because Nick Boletari, we're talking about, was the uh, director of tennis at the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort. And I'm from Buffalo, New York. The person who owned the colony was from Buffalo. That's the only reason I went to the colony. Just some friends took me with them on a tennis vacation. I met Nick. He invited me to, he said he had a school that gets out at noon. And in Buffalo, I was going to school till four. I can play the rest of the year. And there were two kids, three years older than me, that were both very good. Mike DePalmer and Chris Green. Mike DePalmer ended up making it on the tour to about 30 or 40 in the world. And Mike DePalmer, uh, the DePalmer family, a very well-known tennis, American tennis family, for sure. 
so I had a great player to play with. I had won the Buffalo Men's City Open when I was 11. My dad always told me I peaked at 12. So, um, so by 13, I was pretty good, and I needed a top player, and Mike DePalm was perfect for me. But I wanted more good players, and Nick let me go to Kalamazoo, Michigan, to play the Nationals, and I talked to the top 20 kids in the nation to come to this place where we get out of school at noon, we play the rest of the day, you know, it's the place to be. And they all came. Nick didn't charge anybody at that stage. So we were all staying with different teaching pros from the colony's house. Each pro had about four or five kids in their house. And that's how he had got started. He actually got some publicity 2020, that TV show and sports illustrated. And, and um, from there, it just grew into what it has become now, which is unbelievable. Did you, and you said, did you win Kalamazoo? No, I only played it when I was 13. And then actually Nick sort of, when I was 14, I got kicked out of the juniors because I didn't go back to New York. I had to play New York state tournaments to qualify for the nationals. And I didn't go back. I was in Florida and they didn't let me qualify out of Florida. So I had nowhere to play. And I ended up playing satellite for the whole summer and I got a bunch of ATP points. And so all of a sudden I, uh, I played an exhibition against Eddie Dibbs, who at the time was ranked five or six in the world. And I beat him and I beat him in an exhibition. No big deal. It was a one set exhibition to, to help end world hunger. Okay. That's what we were playing. And Nick was at that. And Nick was at that exhibition and after the match, I'd never thought about turning pro at that stage. I mean, I did, I knew I was going to, I wanted to be a pro, but I always was going to go to college. McEnroe, you know, made semis at Wimbledon and went to Stanford for a year. So nobody just turned pro. And I beat Eddie Dibbs in a meaningless one set exhibition. And they go, that's it. You're turning pro. <laughs> the first time I'd ever even thought about it at that stage. And I got a few offers. And I mean, I guess they do it all the time now where the agents start offering you some dough. And, and I realized, wait a minute, I can, I can try the pro tour for three years. I was only in ninth grade, I think ninth or 10th grade. So I can play for two or three years on the tour. If I don't make it, I'll still have like a hundred grand left over to pay for college. So I'm not giving up my college scholarship. Really? I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. Wow. Um, how did you, um, how did you learn your forehand? Um, you played with wood rackets and you, I mean, you had that Western grip and was that something that was a spinoff from like trying to copy a guy like Borg or, or what was, what's the story? No, what, what, what that was, was I was seven years old. I, my dad was, as I told you, an electrical engineer, mathematician. And I took a lesson from a guy named Ian Fletcher who came to Buffalo cause he married a Buffalo girl and he had made fourth round of Australian open. So, you know, thought this would be the best guy to teach me. So I get a lesson from him. He's teaching me the way everyone learned in those days with the handshake grip, which, you know, Eastern continentally sort of forehand grip and ball comes and you step, you turn sideways and then you sort of point the follow through where you want the ball to go. So I come off the court and said to my dad, what'd you think? My dad's from Spain. So he had an accent. He goes, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, how can you swing full speed and stop? You just relax your arm and let it go. You'll learn to control it. So he's basically the guy that he's the guy that started that sort of really extreme whipping. You know, he wanted my racket head up so that it would 
travel in that sort of loop that you see everybody hitting with nowadays. They've actually modified it a little bit to where they even get a little more going than I did. But, but uh, you know, that was sort of a new thing. And I just swung with a relaxed arm as hard as I could. And what that allowed me to do was time the hip turn and shoulder turn perfectly and have that sort of lag where the racket hung back until it was ready to come through because I wasn't using little arm muscles. I was using the big muscles to sort of get rotation. So that's why I won Buffalo men's city open when I was 11. My dad says I peaked at 12. Like I told you, I, I beat two guys in the ATP ranking when I was 12 in a money tournament. Um, so I was overpowering them, even though, you know, you know me now, I'm still not big. Imagine at 12, I weighed 60 pounds, but I could, I could rifle a forehand still. You sure can, um, man. Um, that forehand got you to the semis of the U.S. Open. It got you. And you I'll give you a quick synopsis of my career because it's very interesting in some ways. So eight years old, I decided I was going to be number one in the world. And I was sure I was going to make it to number one. There was no question in my mind. I thought I was going to be Roger Federer playing because Ken Rosewald made finals of the U.S. Open and Wimbledon at 39 and 40. Um, and I was like, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to do really young and I'm going to keep playing until I'm 40 and I'm going to be the greatest of all time. I want to be number one in the world. And then everything went according to plan. I'm 19, rank five, um, just had the run you were talking about, but I got sick with mono and I kept playing a couple of two weeks too long with the mono. So my spleen got enlarged. My liver had a little damage and the doc said three and a half months in bed, no playing. I'd never missed a day of tennis, really. I literally played Sundays. I played Christmas. I played every day. So I had time to reflect, and I made two horrible decisions. One of them, two terrible things I said to myself. One of them was, if I never do anything else in tennis, I've already done great. Well, I never did anything else in tennis. So that sort of spell came true. The other thing was, I don't want to be number one in the world anymore because Number one, the world's too famous for my taste. Um, I, I, I want to be able to go to a movie and no one knows who I am. So number five in the world's perfect. I'd like to stay five. Make good dough. Some people know you, but not regular people. So you know that was a horrible decision, too, because once you decide I want to stay where I am, you go backwards. Everyone's striving to get better, and you're just trying to, protect your turf and that's basically what happened i went down every year 10 spots or so in the rankings so that's my career in a nutshell it's sort of i have some regrets um but you know in the end it's all it's made me who i am today so i'm definitely more humble than i would have been you listen um to a man everyone that we've spoken to nick paul anacone they all said that you know you're amongst the most underrated play- American players in history. Okay. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, I wish that was true. It, it. I think I would have been had I kept the attitude that I had had I not gotten the bottom. But as it turned out, you know, I did okay, but I didn't do what I wanted. So in my mind, I'm, you know, I'm not that happy with the career side. Let's move into our uh, fourth set. This is our 10-ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I say something, and you just say what comes into your mind, okay? That could be dangerous. I don't know if I want to do this game, but go ahead. Favorite tournament? Indianapolis. 
Why? Because they gave us a present every day, and I won the uh, putting and pop a shot contest and got a jet ski. Yeah, so that tournament had a lot my, of great stuff. And My I favorite. played the Indiana Pacers, and that was great. Yeah, I love that film. Favorite city? Um, I like, I liked, uh, I like New York. Favorite player growing up? Rod Laver. Favorite player now? I guess it's hard to answer that because Fetter's the most pleasing to the eye to watch, but I find myself normally cheering for Nadal because I respect the work. Ethic. Having said that, I can't stand how long he takes in between points. So that puts a little damper on my cheering form. So I'm giving you, I'm not really answering that one. Fair enough. Favorite racket? Wilson, Jack Kramer, Pro Staff. When I was ranked five using a Donay, it was actually a painted Jack Kramer, Pro Staff. And that was the racket I had the most. That's, some, inf- that's so. some inside information. Our, our listeners will, uh, they're going to be. <laughs> They're going to be talking about that for for, for, for a long time. Um, favorite match you've seen this year? Jeez. Um, I guess maybe the Sissipas Vavrinka. Um, maybe team maybe team Djokovic. Um, you know, and I probably had I seen this final, I would say that one that we just saw from Wimbledon. Um, your best win. Uh, well, my favorite win or my best win? My best win is Boris Becker as far as ranking. Um, Where'd you beat Becker? My, I beat Becker in Monte Carlo. And then he beat me. Then he beat me a few, then he beat me a few weeks later in the fourth round of the French. And when we shook hands, normally when you've beaten someone, you say bad luck or something like that. Instead, he goes, we're one and one now. <laughs> and I, I go, yes, we are. Glad you're keeping track. Um, your, your, I guess your favorite win. My favorite win was Yannick Noah. Quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. I put huge pressure on myself to make at least the semifinals there because I'd had an amazing summer. And I knew I didn't play Mac, Connors, or Lendl, so I knew I could beat anybody else. And Noah had won the French that year. We played in the quarters, night match at the Open. 6-5 in the fifth. I have... 1540. He had just double faulted at 1530 going for an ace second serve. And when he missed his first serve at 1540, I knew I'd have a forehand that he wouldn't go for an ace again. He'd kick it. And I decided, okay, I'm going to aim right down the center, but hit as hard as I can. And I'm so anxious that I hit it 12 feet in front for an angle winner, which (laughs) made it look like I was clutch, but it was, I missed my shot by 12 feet. Um, and were you wearing, were you, were you wearing the bikini, uh, with the pony shoes or what? Yes. And the painted Wilson that was, and we, <laughs> the, the, the Don a painted, uh, the, the Don a painted Wilson. Now, did you, did you wear bikini and pony your whole career? Um, no, I, most of it. Um, but towards the end I had another deal with a company called The Best Company. They weren't actually the best company. Hang on one sec. Okay, I'll stay right here. So don't close it without... Okay. Your favorite buffalo wings? <laughs> Anchor Bar, I guess, where they originated. Uh, let's move into our fifth and final set. You call this the king of the court. 
Jimmy, if you were the king of tennis and you could just take a scepter swing and uh, make a change, what would the change be? Um, I guess the, the one rule change that actually drives me crazy a little bit is is um, the rule because of Jennifer Capriotti that women can't play a full schedule when they want. They have to wait till they're 18 years old. And I feel like if you're good enough and you can make millions of dollars, I don't see the, uh, the harm in that. So I've been trying for years to get when Anna Kornikova was very good and young, I was trying to get her to sue. Um, you know, I, if I ever knew Coco golf, I'd go to her and say, Hey, why don't you petition to make sure you play as many weeks as you want? You're mature enough. So that's one of the things I would change. Most of the rules. You think that you, you played at 15. You think that if, you can handle the workload. You should be able to do whatever you want. It's a free country. Exactly. That's my thought process. So, And it was happened to be my best years, 16, 17, and 18. First of all, let me just say thank you very much. We appreciate you taking this time directly after the tennis on a huge schedule to, to talk with us. My pleasure. Be good. My man, uh, you, you know, we say here you are released. But uh, since we're... <laughs> since we're uh, Sending you up to the a plane. Uh, have a safe flight. Enjoy your flight. Have a good week. Thanks, partner. Be good. We'll okay. see you. Huge thank you to Jimmy Arias. If you enroll in the IMG Academy, maybe he will help you find a way to get the best of Novak Djokovic. Thank you to George Zink for setting up the interview. Big thank you to our Patreon supporter, Barry Dugan. I am certainly looking forward to hitting some balls with you. If you want to hit balls with me, or even better, world number 39, Ashley Harkle Road, or Malibu Rackets head of tennis and former world number 30, Trey Walke, please visit our Patreon page and become a supporter. There are a ton of great perks beyond the hitting sessions, and you get the pleasure of helping to keep the lights on here at Under Review. Our Patreon page can be found at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At URWithCS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.